Well, our pattern as a church family is to take a portion of Scripture and to walk it through verse by verse, book by book. And just to remind us why we do this is because we believe wholeheartedly that the all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And I'm not sure that in my time with you, brothers and sisters, we'll ever get to every passage of Scripture uh, as as the pace that I've set so far, it's going to be hard to get through the whole New Testament. Uh, but nonetheless, we feel it's pro- the, the, it is profitable as a course and for the mainstay of a church's diet to walk through all of scriptures. It's helpful for you and I to cover the passage we understand right alongside the next passage we don't. And the passage we agree with, with the passage that's hard for us to get. Because we want to submit ourselves to the word of God. This is the authority for us. This teaches us what is true and right when it concerns spiritual things, both in this life and the life to come. And so we are here this morning in light of that, to worship the Lord through submitting to His Word. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to John 16. I hope that this year, 2024, we will finish the Gospel of John. And so let me ask you to pray for me. I'm undecided where we're going next. Uh, So pray for me about that. But in John 16, we're picking up where we left off in November. We're going to read verse 16 through verse 24, and by God's grace, we're going to cover this this morning. Entitled the sermon, The Promised Source of a Christian's Joy. The Promised Source of a Christian's Joy. Verse 16 in John 16 reads this. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will not see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask. And you will receive that your joy may be full. 
There's a story of a famous artist by the name of Thomas Nast. He was in a public exhibition one day, painting. And he is said to have performed a strange feat with his brushes. It is said that he took a canvas about six feet long and two feet wide, and he placed it nearly horizontal upon an easel before his audience. And then he began to sketch rapidly a landscape. In quick succession, we're told that he, uh, he appeared on the, the canvas, green meadows, and then you could discern cattle and fields of grain, and then a farmhouse was, was seen, and then surrounding buildings. He painted an orchard, and then over it all, he finished it off with a bright sky with fleece clouds. And these clouds seemed to pour out heaven's benediction, it said. With the scene below. And at length, no finishing touch was necessary. It was, it was a masterpiece. But the artist still had his brush in his hand. And he took a couple of steps back and look, took, looked to his audience, which was a cue for them. And they, they erupted in hearty applause of admiration for the work he had just accomplished. When the applause finished, Mr. Nash stepped back to the canvas as if he had not yet quite completed. Instead of lighter colors that he had been working with, he now moved to darker colors, and he applied them in what seemed to be in a most reckless manner to the canvas. The bright sky was gone, and the, and the vibrant colors were cut, painted over. And one person asked, did you ever see a picture like this? He has blotted out his meadows, his fields, his orchards, and his buildings up and down and across past the artist's hand until the landscape was obliterated and nothing but a daub, such as what our children might make when they're doing their finger paintings. Then, with a more satisfied look, he stepped back and looked again at the audience as if to say, It's finished. But no applause came from the audience. They were perplexed. Then, Nast ordered his attendants to take the painting and to put a gilded frame around it, what seemed to be a ruined work of art, and turn it vertically. When he did so, the mystery was revealed. For before the audience stood a panel picture of one of the most beautiful waterfalls. The water plunging over a precipice of a dark rock and skirted with trees and verdure and immediately erupted from the audience a burst and rounds of applause. What immediately appeared was something of perplexing of a perplexing nature. But when it was turned to the right position was awe-inspiring. Brothers and sisters, what we have in this illustration this morning is a direct illustration of what's happening for the apostles of Jesus Christ in John 16. Our master painter, our Lord, is painting with strokes and ordering the providences of his ministry on earth in ways that were perplexing to them. 
noticed some of the things they were saying. What does he mean by what he's saying? We do not know what he is talking about. And he even goes to point out to them in this passage that for a while you will be sorrowful. In essence saying, you're going to be like that audience. You're going to be perplexed at all that is taking place in my, in my life, in, in Christ's life. And then after that, you will have joy. And likewise, brothers and sisters, that happened for the apostles on this occasion. Jesus is predicting it. They were perplexed and sorrowful and grieving over the cross of Christ and the separation they felt from their Lord. But he is seeking to prepare them for the eventual outcome. And he says, your joy, your sorrow will turn into joy. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples. Remember with me where we are in the context of John 16. Jesus is speaking to his 11 apostles. This is the inner circle of Jesus' ministry. This is who he's speaking to. And his goal in verses chapter 14 through 17 is to prepare them for what's about to happen in chapter 18. He's going to be arrested, and he's going to be tried, and then he's going to be crucified on a cross. And so that's where we are. Jesus is speaking no longer publicly, but privately to his apostles. And he is preparing them for the difficulty and the sorrow that will happen. But note with me, brothers and sisters, we have noted this already, but let me remind you that Jesus' tone changed in verse 18 of chapter 15. Jesus had told them, I am going away. But then in chapter 15, verse 18, he drives a more narrow point. He's going away, and it will be through the means of the world's hatred. He says in chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And then from that point forward, through the end of our chapter, brothers and sisters, the word world, W-O-R-L-D, is used 14 times. It's the predominant backdrop of all of chapter 16. He starts chapter 16 by talking about, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you into synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So he's speaking about persecution. He's speaking about the opposition and the hatred of the world. And it is in this backdrop that Jesus tells them, you will have sorrow, but that sorrow, that specific sorrow, will be turned into joy. And So the backdrop is persecution and the opposition that comes from a fallen world, the mass of men who are opposed to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, and they're venting of that to the followers of Christ and Christ himself. Jesus is here predicting his imminent death and he's promising them and he's showing them that they're going to be sorrowful, predicting it to them and promises them that their sorrow will turn into joy and a joy that will never be removed. Note with me that phrase, brothers and sisters, what he says in verse 20, your sorrow will turn into joy. And then in verse 22, and no one will take your joy from you. What a marvelous promise. Let your mind and heart set on this today. This is an inheritance. This is, a, this is a, an aspect of Christian living where he says that you can have a joy that is irremovable from you. 
And today, brothers and sisters, my aim in preaching to you this morning is to draw your mind and heart back to this source of joy so that your heart can elevate itself out of the sorrows and the dreams of this life and set your affections on things above. And what is this source of joy? It is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. You see, as believers, we have a fixation with our Lord. We have a, an, an exaltation with His death, resurrection, and cross because it is that which brings us the greatest joy. Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and ascended to the Father is my joy. And if you want to have lasting joy today, if you want to have a, a heart of, of satisfaction and rest, you must learn to find and continually find your rest and your joy in that and that alone. Jesus says, this joy will never be taken from you. I do not always have joy in my circumstances. I don't know about you. I don't always have joy in my peers. I don't always have joy in my church family. God bless you all. I don't always have joy in my family or my wife, but I tell you, I always have a source of joy in Jesus that has never run dry. I may lose my sense of that joy. I may not appreciate it always, but Christ is a source of joy that never runs dry because it is a source of joy that is outside of me. It's outside of my circumstances. It's in what Christ has done for me. And today, brothers and sisters, visitors, friends, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever is going on in your life, your primary aim, your primary goal should be to fix your eyes upon Christ today. And by faith, trust in Him. Are you with me this morning? Say amen. I have three points to draw your attention to this. First off, I want you to see with me the prediction of a paradox. I know that's a big word. Paradox of sorrow and joy. The prediction of a paradox of sorrow and joy. If you're keeping notes, the second point is going to be the promise of unceasing joy. And then third point, the preventative medicine for any sorrow. Those three points. Consider with me the prediction of a paradox. He says... In verses 16 through 18, they have this conversation about Jesus' words. They're perplexing to him. Uh, And this conversation centers around a confusion in the minds of those apostles. They don't understand the specific meanings of Jesus' words, specifically the phrase, a little while. That's a generic term, so we can kind of understand. It's not very specific. He didn't say in 30 minutes. He didn't say in two days. He said a little while. So it's, it's general. But he repeats it and, and, and puts it on in a different framework twice. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And so this perplexed the disciples. They did not know exactly what Jesus was referring to, and it was not obvious to them. To you and I, it is obvious, but you have to remember, get in their framework of mind. This is before the cross. This is before the resurrection. This is before the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And these apostles were, were confused about the, the details here. And so they're, they're, they're questioning among themselves and they're debating among themselves about exactly what it is. A little while and you will see me no longer means I will die on the cross. 
That's what he's talking about. A little while and you will see me no longer. Why? Because I'm going to go on the cross and I'm going to die and my body's going to be in the grave. And literally, you will not see me. But then he repeats it and says, in a little while again, and you will see me. He's predicting his resurrection. He means I will rise again. And then I'm going to be with the Father, which is his ascension to the throne in heaven. All of this, brothers and sisters, is referring to Jesus' work as a mediator and priest. Jesus would go as our mediator, our priest, and offer himself up on the cross as an offering to God and would be raised from the dead. He would ascend to the right hand of God the Father and he would sit there now as our high priest ever living to make intercession for our sins. But they were wanting to ask him about these details and he did, they did not understand And the verb tense indicates that they were having a conversation. It wasn't like a momentary thing. It was an ongoing issue. And so Jesus is aware of this and then confronts them over it. He says, are you asking, is this why you're asking yourself, verse 19, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? He says in verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. He gives a threefold description here of their coming experience. He uses the word weep, lament, and sorrow. And together they give an all-compassing description of people who are in the throes of, of grief. Weeping is an outward expression. And in that day would have been vocalized by, by real loud expressions of grief. For example, remember back in chapter 11 that the women who, fought, who were mourning with Mary and Martha were following Jesus, weeping loudly and wailing over, over the death of Lazarus. This is what Jesus predicts for his disciples. You will be like those women. You will be weeping. He says later, though, he says also, you will lament. So it's, it's, inward, it's a word describing an inward mourning and grieving Followed by a general term of sorrow, a, a, a disposition of sadness and grief in mind and body. This is exactly what happened to the disciples. In Luke chapter 23, verse 27, we're told that as Jesus is carrying the cross all the way up to Golgotha, up the hill, there followed him a great multitude of people, listen, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. This term, mourning, weeping, and lamenting, were specifically used of the experience of death. And so Jesus is here telling them, you are going to be like people mourning for someone who's died. And they did. Mark 16.10 says, she, being Mary, went and told the disciples. This is after Jesus has been raised and appeared to his mother. Mary, she went to the disciples where they were staying, who had been with them. And where did she find them? She found them mourning and weeping over Christ's death three days later. And so this is what happened to the apostles. Jesus is predicting this of them and preparing them for it. You will weep and lament. But notice with me the the transition, the contrast. But the world will rejoice. The world will rejoice. Jesus' death for the apostles was a scene of great grief and sorrow, but for the surrounding outside world, for those who were not his followers, it was victory for them. 
It was, it was an occasion of gladness for them. They rejoiced over it. Finally, we were done with that guy. They silenced Jesus. They put him to death. And his death brought satisfaction to their minds and hearts of fallen men. Why is that? Well, because Jesus was a nuisance. Jesus was unrelenting. He confronted men of their sins and he exposed their inward hearts. And the fallen men will not tolerate that. They don't, they don't want that. I don't want you exposing how evil my heart actually is. That makes me uncomfortable. And so if I can't get you to stop, then I'll put you to death to get, and we'll be done with you completely. It, illustra- it reminds us, brothers and sisters, that the mass of fallen men, apart from God's grace, are bent away from God. Are bent away from God. All of us, by nature, are prone to resist the lordship of Christ, His rule and ways, and we will, cannot, on our own, tolerate His intruding influence of righteousness and of conviction because it's too much to bear. And only when the Holy Spirit comes and opens our minds and hearts are we able to then see that yes, this is right and this is good, and I deserve this kind of exposure. The world rejoiced when Jesus was dead. It reminds us in Revelation 11.10, brothers and sisters, of what is said in that apocalyptic vision. There are mentioned two witnesses who will be on the earth giving witness to the earth, and they will become martyrs. In Revelation 11.10, notice with me how how the earth will react to their death. Revelation 11.10 says, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. You see, the world's hatred is expressed today in their treatment of the messengers of God, of the prophets. The Old Testament prophets were an illustration of this. Cain and Abel is an illustration of this. And we live in a fallen world where fallen men's hearts are depraved. And they, rejo- and they express this when they rejoiced over the death of Jesus. You will re- lament, but the world will rejoice. Now here's the paradox. He says, your sorrow will turn into joy. Notice with me, brothers and sisters, he does not say that your sorrow will be replaced with joy. He says, your sorrow will turn into joy. You see, their perspective on what was happening or what had happened will change. They will turn... From mourning over the cross, the loss of their master, the loss of purpose, their fellowship with him, to rejoicing in it. You see, the world rejoices in the downfall of Christ and his people because they think it means we won't have to listen to it any longer, that guy any longer. But Christians joy in the cross of Jesus Christ because we know of what it, it accomplished for us. Jesus, when he went to that cross, paid the penalty for our forgiveness, our reconciliation with the Father. And that that brings us great satisfaction and great joy. But he tells them the very event which would cause them grief would afterward be the very reason they would have superlative rejoicing. What about that? The very thing that caused them sadness would, would become the thing which they rejoice over. 
Have you ever thought about the irony of the Christian religion? We, we placard, we put on, uh, on emblems, we even have a, several of them put across this auditorium, and we even have them on necklaces, the emblem of a cross. Now, that's nostalgic today. That's, that's, kind of, that's kind of a niche thing that we don't rightly process. But if we had done that in, in Jesus' day, do you realize the stares we would have gotten? The way people would have looked at us, you're, you're joying in the cross. Do you know what a cross is? Do you understand exactly the, the kind of excruciating form of death? We might as well put an electric chair on a necklace and hang it around our neck. That's what the world would see. But Jesus here shows and predicts to those apostles what the world, what will bring you the most grief will be what you rejoice in. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the source of great joy. So much so that ever since Jesus' death and resurrection, Christians have from that point till this day been boasting in the cross of Jesus. Why? Because it's where God the Father was satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We're later told that the apostles did have joy Hold your finger here and turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. This is the... uh, Narrative of the upper room, when the apostles saw Jesus again after his resurrection. And note with me what it says, verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name To all nations beginning from Jerusalem. We find here, brothers and sisters, that when Christ did appear to them, they did have joy. They did understand. They did see clearly what had taken place. I want you to see before we move to point number two, an illustration to prove this point. It comes out in verse number 21. Jesus gives an illustration to help the, the apostles Grasp this, what's going to take place with them. And he talks about the illustration of a woman. Let's read it. He says in verse 21, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. 
And what's he saying here? What's, what's, he, what's the point? Is Jesus trying to teach us about the nature of childbearing? No, no, he's giving us an illustration of the point. The point is what? That childbirth is also a paradoxical experience. It's a paradoxical experience for the women who endure it. You see, brothers and sisters, because of Eve's sin in the garden, childbirthing has been carried out from that day until today under a curse. And as a result, it's a very painful experience. Childbirthing is painful. It's sorrowful. It is difficult. It's even so much so, this is common knowledge, women in our day like to joke that men do not truly understand pain because they've never had to give birth. And all you ladies say amen right there. Uh, But that's not Jesus' point. His point is to draw out the paradox. She forgets the anguish. The woman that gives birth forgets the anguish as soon as you take that baby and lay it in her arms. She goes through at times hours of intense pain, climaxed by excruciating pain, and yet when it's all over, the pain is overshadowed by the joy of what's here. A little boy, a little girl. I remember asking my mother when I was younger about this verse. I read it, and then I was curious about it, and I went and asked her about it. And she wasn't familiar with the verse, and when I read it to her, she, she had this surprised look on her face, and she said, that's exactly what it's like. I remember when our children were born. I know the joy I experienced. Childbirthing wasn't as difficult and sorrowful for me, but I remember witnessing firsthand the joy in my wife's face. When you lay the children in her arms, it was almost as if she forgot about the pain. Jesus' point here is that the very thing which caused pain becomes a source of great joy. This is what the cross would be for the apostles. They lived it firsthand. They experienced it as it was being walked out. And though they were at first grieving... They would be overjoyed like that woman holding the baby. I don't even remember the grief anymore. All I remember is the satisfaction now that that child is here. Let me point you to a couple of applications here, brothers and sisters. This reminds us, I think, first, that this is often God's way of sanctifying His people. He chooses paths of difficulty for you intentionally and if we are going to endure those with joy and patience and in faith we must recognize that it's important for us not to grow weary when God's chosen path for me to sanctify me is difficult and hard this is the way we grow as Christians when you first came to Christ what kind of a massive humbling took place in your life You finally saw your sin for the first time, and boy, that humbled you. You knew how much of a wretch you were and how dependent you were on God. That's not fun. But oh, what joy was yours that when after you saw your sin, you seen how sufficient Jesus was to save you. You see, there's a reason for that, brothers and sisters. God takes men through the valley of difficult of conviction to bring them to the mountaintop of joy. 
You cannot know the joys of forgiveness and salvation until God clearly shows you your sin. God chooses the path of of difficulty to sanctify us and to bring us through the valley of hardship to the mountaintop of joy. So don't grow weary. Don't despair if you find yourself in seasons like the apostles who were lamenting and weeping and dismayed over what was going on. You and I must not give up hope in the midst of frowning providences when your life has taken a turn and gone away that you did not expect. If you are saved, if you are God's child, though your life is filled with sorrow and and difficulty... You have a promise. God is working all of these things for your good. And see an example of this in the life of the apostles. They had a joy given to them which would never be removed, but it took going through that sorrow first. I think that's a picture for us, brothers and sisters. Though our sorrows and our difficulties don't save us from our sin, only the cross of Jesus Christ does, by faith you can learn to walk, accepting whatever God places in your path, believing that even these things will be for your good. God is working all things for good to those who love Him, to those who are the called according to His purpose, and you can rest today. There's rest for you. There is reprieve for your wearied mind and heart. If you will, by faith, trust in the Lord, turn to Him, repent of your sin, and rest in His good pleasure and goodwill, and say, God, I know that you do all things well. And remember, brothers and sisters, there's coming a day when, like the apostles, our faith will be turned aside. Your sorrows and your difficulties now will not always be answered in this life, but when we finally at last reach our eternal home and are in God's presence, God is going to do like that painter did. He's going to take the tapestry of your life and he's going to grab it and he's going to turn it upward. And you're going to see, boy, he does all things good. What a masterpiece. We will sing for all eternity. Great is the Lord. Jesus will, at the end of time, if not before then, turn that painting over, and we will finally see the greatness of our Lord. I have two more points this morning. I went long on the first one. I'll be quick on the second two. Point number two. Not only the paradox of sorrow and joy, the promise of unceasing joy. John 16, verse 22. So also you have sorrow now. Meaning he's drawing back to the illustration. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one... No one will take your joy from you. The thing that would bring them joy is that they will see Jesus again. They will see Christ, and they did see Christ. And the thing that brings us joy today, true and everlasting joy, is when our heart, by faith, grasps Christ. So while we sing in that song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face. 
and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What's that talking about? Was I saying I need to somehow see Jesus with my eyes? No, no. Your heart needs to grasp the truths of God's word by faith. And when you can do that, when you can, as if it were, see Jesus, you'll have joy. When your mind can come to apprehend the truths of the gospel, and when your will is bowed to believing and obeying Christ, that Jesus says, this is true joy. This is everlasting joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. And this is the unique nature, brothers and sisters, of joy in Christ. That's joy that's rooted in Christ. And it's joy that's rooted in spiritual and eternal things. It can never be taken from you. Your joys and satisfactions in this life can, like moth and rust, corrupt it. Or thieves break through and steal. Someone can come and steal your family members from you. The, the, the inflation could take away all of your bank account from you. Uh, any other thing in this life is vulnerable to be ripping away from you. And if your heart sets your, your life, your purpose, and your joy in those things, they are, you are at risk. That is a bad investment. It will be removed from you. But if you set your mind and heart on Christ... If you put your hopes in things to come and your affections in the gospel, in spiritual things, you are making an investment which will only bring a return. It will never be removed from you. You see, when you set, if you live your life hoping, joying, trying to find pleasure and satisfaction only in this life, you will turn out miserable and depressed. But if you will turn to Christ, if you will repent of your sin and trust in Him, He promises joy that will never be taken away from you. And He can do this because of what He did on Calvary. When Christ went to the cross, He satisfied the just demands of God for your sin. You were born alienated and separated to God, just like me. I was at enmity with my Maker. And now that Christ has gone to the cross, those, that sin debt has been satisfied. When we are saved by God's grace, we are adopted into His family. And He bestows upon us the blessing of the person of the Holy Spirit. And all of these things are to bring not difficulty and hardship but joy there is no greater joy than being one with your creator and being and walking with him and knowing him our lives when we get to heaven will not be some kind of drudgery some kind of meaningless pointless church service where we're just sitting around singing we're all bored out of our minds it will be never ending joy because there's nothing more enjoyable than being in the presence of god And that is only possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. If you are saved today, you have entered into the joy of Christ. The joy of what Christ has done for you on the cross, no one can take it from you. And it exists regardless of your outward circumstances. You may, like David, backslide and lose your sense of Christ's joy... But if you are here today and a Christian, if you'll turn back to the Lord, it can be restored. You might need to pray this morning, restore to me the joy of thy salvation like David did. 
and ask for God to give you a fresh vision of Christ. I want to ask you this morning, is Christ your joy? What are you hoping in? What are you living for? What is consuming your mind and your thought and your will and your emotions? What is your life about? If you want real lasting joy, it needs to be Christ. We enjoy the pleasures of this world as God gives them. We enjoy family, good food, enjoyments of this life. Take pleasure in those things, but they at their heart of hearts cannot be your joy. And if the things of this world seeks to take that place, brothers and sisters, it's time for you to repent. This day, it's time for you to get your heart back right with the Lord and say, Lord, I have been trying to place my joy in the things of this earth. I've been trying to have my satisfaction in my performance at work, my, the, my, my elevation in my job, my family, and all of those things are disappointing me. But, oh God, you are my joy. This is the promise of unceasing joy. Thirdly and finally, I want you to see Jesus gives a preventative medicine for any sorrow. A preventative medicine for any sorrow. Verse 23 and 24, he says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask. 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 And you will receive. That your joy may be full. He tells them they won't ask in that day anything else. He means by that not that the disciples will cease to pray, but that they will cease to be puzzled about all the elements of what's about to happen. The cross, the resurrection, why Jesus came. It will become plain to them. But he turns them now to an important aspect. This is the second and third time he's talked about this element of prayer. In chapter 14, Jesus was primarily concerned about their awareness of how to cultivate a relationship with him. The point was, you need to ask, you need to pray, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. His almost overarching emphasis was their continual fellowship with him after he's gone through the person of the Spirit. But when we get to chapter 16, remember, his point is not how to maintain fellowship with me. His point is how to endure difficulty for the cause of Christ, to endure persecution, to go through the world's hatred. How do we endure such things? Jesus says, ask. Before Jesus' death and resurrection, believers called on the name of the Lord. In Genesis, we read about men who began to call on the name of the Lord, meaning they petitioned God for help and strength, and they relied upon Him through prayer. And this is the way we are to live as well. We live by prayer. We walk by prayer. We, we follow and, and commune with God by prayer. We find success through praying. But since this moment in chapter 16 till today, we, a new dawn has appeared. We pray in the name of Jesus. I like the way one guy said it. He says, praying in the name of Jesus is not a magic formula. 
We almost treat it as such at times, even us who know better. You know, we'll say at the end of our prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. Or I plead the blood of Jesus. Or I, 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 I say this in Jesus' name. And we almost treat it as a mystical formula for getting whatever we want. But it's not a mystical formula. It's not a magic formula. But those words, he's talking about Christ, person, and work. If we ask in line with the will of God, on the basis of what Christ has done for us, and a desire to see God's kingdom spread in this earth, he says, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Why should we do this? And he says this, that your joy may be full. Our joy can be full through prayer. Believers oftentimes are sorrowful and grievous because their prayer closets are empty. That your joy may be full. It is when we fellowship with God in prayer, and as we see Him answering our prayers, our faith grows. Our awareness of what God is doing in the earth increases, and we are, our hearts are lifted and our joy is elevated. When we lack in, in joy, oftentimes we are very clearly lacking in prayer. And when it is only till we return to the prayer closet that our joy then returns. Reminded me of a little poem I found by William Coltman. He says, Until I learned to trust, I never learned to pray. And I did not learn to fully trust until sorrows came my way. Until I felt my weakness, his strength I never knew, nor dreamed till I was stricken that he could see me through. Who deepest drinks of sorrow, drinks deepest too of grace. He sends the storm so he himself can be our hiding place. His heart that seeks our highest good knows well when things annoy. We would not long for heaven if earth only held joy. So Jesus here shows us that there is a promised source of a Christian's unending joy. And I'm here to tell you today that you too can have your joy full. But it's only found in Jesus. You were not made to live for yourself. You and I were made for God. It's like men today. You buy some toy or some, some new, new gadget. I remember at Christmas when I was a young dad, I would, I would pride myself that I don't need the instructions. I can put that together. I see how it works. Put it together and lo and behold, boy, I missed something. You're living for yourself today. If you're living for the pleasures of this life, you're like that dad trying to put together your life and the things of this world without reading the instructions. Well, then lo and behold, you're missing the whole point altogether. You're not made for you. You don't live here for you. You don't exist for you. This world doesn't exist for you. This world doesn't exist for me. This world exists for God. And I won't know true joy, and I won't know true purpose, and I won't know true living until I repent of my sin and turn back to Him. Join with me now. Let's pray together. And let's recommit ourselves to the Lord and let's thank Him for this joy He's promised us.
and cross. We, we come to you, our Heavenly Father, and we praise you today. We thank you for the promise of the gospel. It's not the promise of a life of drudgery, of mere difficulty for the sake of. But Lord, you promise joy. Joy in Christ. If we'll turn to you, Lord, we thank you today, Father, that the sorrows of this life are not the end. And that even they, those sorrows themselves, will somehow be for our benefit and our good. We know this is true, Lord, but we confess that we don't feel it. And oftentimes we doubt your word and your promises. Sometimes we think religion is drudgery. We think following you is nothing but, but difficulty. Sometimes we think that you... you you might design evil for us. But Lord, we confess that all of these are the temptations of our, of our fallen nature and minds and our weak hearts which fail to walk by faith. We pray, Father, that you would cleanse us, renew our hearts today, and help us to trust in you afresh. And if there's someone here today who is struggling, whose life is full of turmoil, and they need a source of everlasting joy that, Lord, they would find it in you today. That they would see that why would they, we expect that life would go easy when I'm rebelling against my maker. Lord, turn some sinner to you today and help them to believe in Christ and find rest in him. Lord, we commit ourselves to you afresh. We want to follow you because, Lord, we know in your path is fullness of joy. Your ways are right and good. Lead us, Lord. Teach us your way and cause us to walk in your ways. We commit this time to you now. In your name we pray.